Good evening, everyone. What a delight it is to be gathered again in the Lord's house on this wonderful summery evening. It's a delight to be able to come and gather before the Lord Jesus Christ in worship and adoration, to lift up our voices together and praise Him, and to receive from His own hand His word. We have the opportunity to come and hear His call to worship, so I'd like to invite you, if you're able to stand with me, as we come into the Lord's presence. And as the Lord Himself summons us to come and worship Him with the words of Psalm 25, verses 8 to 10, which says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that indeed you teach us your ways. And that tonight as we gather together, you will teach us again by your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would accept our offering of worship, that you would quieten our hearts, and that we might receive your ministry, the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let us worship God with the words of before the throne of God above. Oh, 
you have your Bible with you this evening, we're turning to the Old Testament as we continue reading our way through the story of the Bible. We find ourselves in the little book of Ruth. We're picking up in Ruth chapter 2, where we left off last time, as Ruth and Naomi have just returned back to Bethlehem again. So that was Ruth chapter 2, and this is God's holy word for you tonight. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was part of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, My daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eye be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here. And eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. 
She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until you have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaming, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. It's an amazing story, isn't it? As the Lord himself faithfully provides for an outcast, for a Moabites, who was cut off from the people of God by definition of birth. And yet the Lord, by his grace, extends care to this woman, mercy and love and grace. And, and that's just the character of our God, isn't it? And so we too can come to him, we who were outcasts, and cast our cares upon him. So let's do that. Let's pray.
Do we have any children that would like to come to the front this evening? Well, children, I have got a fantastic idea. You know, since I'm the pastor here, I've got a great idea. I think everyone, we should make a new rule. Everyone in church has to wear pink shoes. What do you reckon? Well, you don't like pink shoes? You don't have any? Well, we can buy some. To, well, we can fundraise. You don't want to wear pink shoes? But, what? Yeah, but I think it's a good idea. And I'm the pastor, right? And so I've decided that now everyone has to wear pink shoes. That means mum and dad as well. So dad's going to have to buy some beautiful pink shoes. Um, but in fact, just shoes probably isn't enough. I think we need pink hats too. So everyone's going to have to wear pink hats. We won't say pink dresses because that would be a bit far. But pink pants or skirts only. Good or bad? Thumbs down. Why? But, but it might be a good idea. I'm not the boss. I don't know. I'm the pastor after all, you know. So I should get to decide what everyone wears when they come to church. Like It seems like I think everyone else would agree with this, wouldn't they? No. Oh, they don't. Oh, okay. Guess not. Um, well, maybe something different. Maybe everyone always has to come for the dinner before an evening church. Oh, it's a bit harder, isn't it? No? Still no. Okay. Um, what's the problem here? The problem here is, you're right, I'm trying to say you have to do things that the Bible doesn't say, eh? But if the Bible says it, I'm allowed to, right? Like, if the Bible says you have to love people, can I say you have to love people? Yep, that's right, because the Bible says so. Now, this is a very, very important truth that we're going to be looking at tonight, which is called the liberty of the conscience, which is a big phrase, which means God has given you a free heart to honor him in accordance with the Bible, and that me and the elders and no one else can tell you how you have to do that, unless it's according to the Bible, as you said. Good job. Now, that can be really easy to understand, but it can sometimes be really hard to practice. And we're going to be looking at how that works out and a little bit of stuff like that. So let's pray, and we'll give thanks to God for that, because it really does free us to be able to worship Him with our whole hearts and not just because someone tells us how to do it. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have set us free, and we pray that You would help us not to be controlled by some crazy pastor, but to honor You with our whole heart, to honor You in Christ. And we thank you that there is no human person that is a boss over us, but Christ is our king. And we pray that you'd help us to love him, help these children to do that, help us to stick closely to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing, give thanks with a grateful heart, and then you guys can find your worksheets. Let's stand.
If you have your Bibles, we're going to be turning through to the small letter of Titus as we continue working our way through the book. And we find ourselves in chapter 1 and verse 15. We will read from verse 10 to 16 just to help us set it in its place, just to remind you. Uh, verse 5 to 9 covers the qualifications of the elder, and verse 10 through 14 begins to speak about the work of the elder, which segues us into verse 15 and onwards. So we'll pick up at chapter 1 of Titus, verse 10, and this is the Lord's word for you tonight. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word to us and let us come to him in a time of prayer before we sit under the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come before you tonight and we thank you that you've given us your holy word and we pray that as we turn to it this evening, that you would help us to, to hear and understand and to believe and to put into practice what you have to say. Lord, we, we need your word. We need to be taught by you. And so we pray that you would indeed teach us by your spirit. For you have given us the Holy Spirit that we, might, that we might know you and grow into you. And so we pray, help us this evening, that Lord, we might go forth into another week, having fed deeply upon the rich food that you've given us. Sustain us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week was Reformation weekend. One of the huge discoveries of the Reformation, or rediscoveries, I should say, was the liberty of the conscience. You see, prior to that, for a very long time, the consciences of most of the people of Christendom were completely bound by the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church defined what you could and couldn't do. They structured your life for you. And they 
enforced it rigorously. But in the Reformation and the discovery and the rediscovery of the Word of God, this doctrine of the liberty of the conscience, which was so important at the foundation of the church, sort of came back into light again. And so all of the Reformation writers speak about it. John Calvin has a series of amazing chapters on it. Luther writes extensively upon it. And the Westminster Divines write a whole chapter on it. In fact, one of their chapters says the following, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrine and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And interestingly, when when I was preparing for this sermon, one of the commentators actually calls the Apostle Paul the Apostle of Liberty. It's a pretty cool title, eh? The Apostle of Liberty, which makes sense because when you read his letters, one of the things you see is that in many of them, he actually deals with this particular issue, the liberty and the freedom of the conscience, the liberty of the believer to serve the Lord according to his conscience. It's extremely important. And the reason it's extremely important is that if we do not rightly uphold the liberty of the conscience, we cannot, by definition, we cannot serve the Lord with a whole heart because our heart and our conscience is being bound. And that's exactly what Paul addresses here in chapter 1, verse 15. But it doesn't just crop out of nowhere, does it? It it feels a little bit like that. You know, he's talking about the work of the elder in verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And then all of a sudden, he just sort of like goes, to the pure, all things are pure, by the way. It just sort of like pops out. And you're like, well, feels a little bit disconnected. Some, Some translators suggest maybe... This was something that the people, the Cretans, were saying. And so they actually translated it with like little bunny ears around it, you know. And then Paul responds to that in the next verses. But actually it flows completely, rationally and logically, just out of what's gone before. You see, Paul's just been dealing with what? False teachers, right? So in verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. There's these false teachers. They're Judaizers as well as other things. There's different false teachers, but one of the main groups are the Judaizers who are seeking to enforce the Jewish laws and especially the pharisaical interpretation of the law upon Christian believers. But it's not just them, because in verse 14... Paul tells Titus to rebuke the believers who are beginning to be led into problem. And he says, instruct them, rebuke them, verse 14, that they might not be devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men who turn away from the truth. So there's these two categories, right? Commands of men 
and Jewish myths. Jewish myths is Paul's way of summarizing all of the Judaizing. Whereas the commands of men encapsulate everything else. So this is a problem, right? There are people in the church that are doing things like saying, if you want to be a Christian, you are saved by grace 100%, but you just need to make sure you get the snip. Or it's totally fine to be a Christian and saved by grace. You just need to make sure you keep all of the feasts of the Old Testament. And don't forget the new moons. And don't forget the temple tax. And don't forget the funny hats. You need them all. And we see this in other parts of Paul's writing. So take Colossians. Take Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul's dealing with a very similar type of issue. And so in chapter 2 verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then he says in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. That should be a little s, Sabbath, in my mind. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Children, if you're wondering what asceticism is, it means like not eating and drinking. So suffering lots in the flesh. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, which of course is Christ, right? He says, don't let anyone disqualify you by all this other stuff instead of holding fast to Jesus Christ. Or have a look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. A very, very similar passage. Now, 1 Timothy 4, now the, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And you can think of another great example of this in the Bible. If you remember when we journeyed through Samuel, there's that story of King Saul and Jonathan. And they're fighting. And King Saul takes an oath. You remember this on behalf of all of the people when he says, Anyone who eats before I'm avenged on my enemies shall die. What does he do? He binds the conscience of everyone in his army 
and Jonathan almost dies because of it. But you might be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, but Logan, we're in covenant. We don't have many like circumcision party people running around the church trying to circumcise our children. So what's all the fuss about? I mean, do we really have this type of a threat anymore? Do we have the issue of people creeping in, attempting to bind our consciences? Are we tempted to give ourselves over to them? Is this even a threat today anymore? Of course it is. I can remember being a teenager, and one of my brother's good friends all of a sudden woke up one day and realized that in the Garden of Eden, no one ate meat. I mean, that makes sense, right? And clearly, everything was perfect in the Garden of Eden, and we're going back to that type of a life, and so clearly, eating meat is wrong. Now, for him, that was fine, right? He decided he was going to be a vegetarian. What was the problem? Well, he started telling all of us that we had to do the same and that we were sinning by enjoying our bacon and eggs on Sunday morning. And that's not abnormal. And sure, maybe it's not with meat. Maybe it's something else. It looks a little bit like when in New Zealand history, there's an abstinence movement that starts a over alcohol. Do you remember that? Well, you, we probably don't remember it because most of us weren't alive. But there was a large movement in the church responding to a serious problem, the abuse of alcohol, and the solution to that was to say no one should drink alcohol because alcohol's evil. And so there was a complete ban on alcohol. And what's the problem here? Well, there's no biblical command to justify the outlawing of alcohol. Now, one person might say, I do not feel comfortable, I do not feel right drinking alcohol. But another person might say, along with 1 Timothy 4, I can give thanks and give praise with alcohol. We're not talking about drunkenness or anything like that. That's a completely different question. Obviously, drunkenness is wrong. Everything in moderation, nothing will control me, etc., but it's very, very easy for something to subtly turn from a good thing to an abusive thing. Uh, let me give you a, a very relevant illustration of this that happened very recently to me. Someone said to me, someone who loves coming to our prayer meetings, said to me, Logan, why don't we require everyone to come to the prayer meetings? And from one point of view, like, well, it would be great if everyone came to the prayer meetings, right? But I said to them, as much as I would love for lots of people to come to the prayer meeting, I don't have a law in the Bible that says people must go to a Thursday night prayer meeting. So I can't say you all have to come to a Thursday night prayer meeting. We can say that about going to church, right? Because there's a command to not forsake the gathering of the people of God. But I can't say that about a prayer meeting. We can't say that about a shared lunch. We can't say it about anything or, or outfits, right? It's amazing how, how subtly and how quickly this can creep in. All of a sudden, all of the men start wearing ties. Obviously, that's not happening, but you can imagine, right? 
And no one says that anyone has to wear a tie, but everyone looks disapprovingly upon someone if they're not wearing a tie. Or it goes the other way, right? We want to be likable to the world, so we dress down in our church. And if someone dresses up and puts a suit on, everyone looks down upon them condescendingly because that's not what we do here. And so subtly what we do is we communicate to people that this is what it means to be a real Christian. I mean, you're still a Christian, but we're real Christians. And I've seen this in churches where the church loves private education or homeschooling or public school. And what we subtly communicate is, if you're a real Christian, you'll put your kids in Manukau Christian School. But if you don't put them in there, then, I mean, you're still saved, but you're just a little bit down the list, you know? And it happens so subtly without us actually realizing. Here's, here's another one. This is very interesting. G.I. Williamson, who wrote a fantastic commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, he gets to this section on liberty of the conscience, and he says, this happens all the time in Baptist churches. You say, what, what do you mean, how? Because they mandate baptism by immersion only. When there is no command, explicit command of God, that people must be baptized by immersion. And so it's a binding of the conscience. And this is why the Westminster Confession, when they get to the mode of baptism, they say sprinkling and pouring is the, effectively the more biblical method of doing it. And immersion is unnecessary, but it doesn't say it's wrong. Because to say it's wrong is to bind people's consciences, right? So this is still a massive issue. And if you think it's not very serious, take the words of A.A. Hodge on board. He says, it is a great sin, a sacrilege, and an act of treason to bind the consciences of men. And at the same time, it is a sin of disloyalty to God to yield to any such thing. Do you see how seriously he takes that? Why? Because, as the Westminster divines say, only God is the Lord of the conscience. So if I allow someone else to control my conscience, it's an act they're doing an act of treason, right? Because they're taking and supplanting the place of God as my head. And when you allow someone to, if you allow someone to, you are yielding to disloyalty and sin. Now, you, we may not have this issue in our church, and praise be to God, I'm fairly confident we don't. But we must be on guard against it, right? Lest some dodgy pastor comes in who seeks to try and bind all of your consciences. Or the elders seek to make a decision which would bind your conscience. So what's, what's, what's the solution? How, how do we deal with this, this problem, this perennial threat to control people's consciences because deep down subtly in the sinful human leader heart there is a desire for conformity to what you think is wise and good so how do we fight back against that what's the solution 
Well, the solution is to understand and see from where our freedom comes. So we see these Jewish myths and these commands of men creeping in everywhere, being problematic. And Paul says, to the pure or the clean, all things are pure and clean. What does he mean by to the pure? Where does this purity and this cleansing and this freedom of conscience come from so that all things can be pure? He's he's speaking of the inward transformation of the heart that flows into a transformed action. You see, by by nature, we are bound, right? By nature, we are dead in our sin. And we are bound in our sin. We are lock and chain under a ruler, as Ephesians would call it, the prince of the power of the air. But we are in redemption. As Christ redeems us from from the devil, we are set free, right? That's what redemption is. It is a setting free, a purchasing to set free, a liberation And so the divines again would say, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin. From the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. All which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. And in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. You see, in Christ, we have received freedom, right? So Jesus will say in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You no longer have an earthly or a devilish master. You no longer serve the devil. You are no longer bound to sin and the world. But through the purification of the heart, you've been liberated to live for God. We see Jesus dealing with this in in the book of Mark. Turn to Mark with me. He sort of explains this so clearly for us. And we see both sides, both the danger as well as the solution coming through. Mark chapter 7, picking up at verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, let's remember these are the religious experts, right? The leaders and the experts of the church. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, brothers and sisters, is it a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Yes. So your mother always taught you, right? Go and wash your hands before you eat. You'll get sick. And plus, you've just been playing outside and who knows what you touched. Great idea. And Jesus says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Why is it, brothers and sisters, that to the pure all things are pure? How is it that we can enjoy all things given to us by God with joy and satisfaction while for the world nothing is pure, but they are defiled in their minds and consciences? Because we've received new hearts, right? You see, if it's, if it's out of the heart that flows evil or good, It's because we've been given a new heart that we can now take the very gifts of God and enjoy them to the praise of God. We've been set free to enjoy all that's being given to us. You see, it's the free grace of Christ that enables us to say no to being bound captive. And yes, to serving God with a whole heart. But what sort of freedom is this? 
See, it's fine to say we're free, right? But what does that mean? Does that mean I can just live how I want? Does that mean I can flaunt my freedom? Does that mean I'm free to do things that might hurt people? How do we express this freedom? You see, because he says to the pure, all things are pure, right? So does that mean like the libertines taught, well, I can do whatever I want with my body. I can, I can enjoy having relationships with whoever I want because I'm free. And to the pure, it's pure. And I've been redeemed and sanctified and clean. So I can commit myself to idolatry or adultery or murder or theft. And it doesn't matter, right? Because I'm pure and I'm sanctifying these things. It's like a young gentleman I knew who said, I know I'm not meant to date a non-Christian, but I'm a Christian, and my heart's pure, and, and I'm, I'm going to save her. And after all, if God didn't want it, he wouldn't have made me feel this way. A stellar logic, isn't it? No, children, it's not stellar logic. <laughs> so what a pure... Taylor provides, one of the commentators, Taylor provides a really helpful framework to help us think through this issue. He says, the believer uses all things purely when he is led unto and moderated in their use by these three virtues, faith, love, and sobriety. And, and then he goes on to explain that it's, it's by faith that we use all things out of devotion and glory to God. So if it cannot be used in accordance with 1 Corinthians, do everything to the glory of God. If it cannot be done by faith in praise to God, then you cannot do it. And then he says, faith and love and in love, we look to those around us. We look to our fellow brothers and sisters, and we consider what it is that we're about to do. And we ask ourselves, is this going to promote the good in my fellow man and in those I'm called to love and care for? I mean, the, the classic example of this is, is alcohol, right? If you invite someone over to your house for dinner and you know that person considers drinking to be wrong, it would be harmful and sinful to put a bottle of wine on the table, right? I used to have two earrings. Shock horror maybe for some of you. I used to have an earring in one ear. I was a, I was a jewelry store owner and it was great publicity. And so when I was in Rotorua, I had an earring in each ear, and I thoroughly loved my earrings, and you can judge me for it later all you want if you want to, and I enjoyed my earrings, and when I received a call to come here, do you know what I did? I took them out. Because someone said to me wisely, you wouldn't, would, would not want those earrings to stop someone being able to receive the word of God from you when you're preaching. If there's someone that's offended 
by a man wearing two earrings, it is not going to be helpful to have the pastor standing at the front with two earrings. Pray about it. And I prayed about it. And I went, yeah, that logic seems pretty good to me. Why do I need earrings? So I just whipped them out and off we went. Why? Because we're committing ourselves to the love of one another, right? But then thirdly, he says sobriety. And this looks internally. Will this thing, will all things, will this thing lead to my upbuilding and growing in Christ and growing in Christ-like stature and godliness? You see, there there are many things which actually are lawful and good, which we don't do because it does not help me grow in Christ. And so we don't just pursue what's acceptable, which is how we tend to think, right? We're often tempted to think, and this is especially prevalent with teenagers, so teenagers, listen up. What we often tend to do is we we say, where is the line of sin? Okay, here's the line of sin. And so we say, "How how close can I get to this without touching, right? It's like, I'm not quite touching, so I'm still safe. I'm in the line. Rather than saying, how far can I stand away and live to the glory of God? How, how safe can I be? You see, to, to have liberty of conscience is not by definition just to be free to live how you want. It's actually to be bound. Now that might sound counterintuitive to you, but liberty of conscience is being bound, as Hannah pointed out to us. Because the solution is, but the Bible doesn't say that. You see, we are set free from the flesh, the world, and the devil, but we are slaves of Christ, right? And we are bound to Christ. And we live not for ourselves, but we live for Christ. And he has purchased us at a price and has set us free to live for him. And we are bound to one another, right? As brothers and sisters, as a family, we're bound to give ourselves to one another. And we're bound to our own Christ-likeness. And so that limits us. And so we give ourselves to the liberty of the conscience. And I'm going to fight back against anyone that seeks to bind my conscience with anything that is not in accordance with the Word of God. But at the same time, I'm going to express my liberty in obedience to the word of God and in sacrificial love to both Christ, my neighbor, and myself. Because at the end of the day, that's what enables us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all strength and strength and mind, right? And to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is our Lord's greatest commandment. You know, there's there's always going to be threats, external and internal threats to our freedom. You know, you can think of Galatians 2. So Paul, Paul took Timothy in Acts and he circumcised him, didn't he? He circumcised Timothy in order to minister to the saints because he was going to be ministering to Jews. And then Paul went with Titus, who was also uncircumcised, And he came into Jerusalem, and it it tells us in Galatians 2 that some sneaked in to spy out their freedom. It's a great phrase, sneaked in to spy out their freedom. 
And Paul says, and we did not yield to them for a second. And he refuses to circumcise Titus. Titus himself was a living example of Paul's principle here of saying no, because the Bible doesn't require it. You know, these people, these people that seek to bind consciences and live with their consciences bound are described really beautifully by Matthew Henry. He says, things lawful and good, they abuse and turn to sin. They suck poison out of that from which others draw sweetness. They suck poison out of that from which others draw sweetness. Brothers and sisters, don't let anyone cause your sweetness to become poison. But giving thanks to God by faith to the glory of God, enjoy that which he's given you. And don't allow a pastor or an elder or a member or anyone to tell you and to bind your conscience that you live drinking poison for the rest of your life. And may God be pleased to enable us to live in Christ-centered freedom. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that you have purchased for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. and We thank you that you have set us free, that you have purified our hearts, that we might enjoy all things as pure. And we pray, God, give us wisdom to do this well. Help us to live not just for ourselves, but for you and for our brothers and sisters and that we might become more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, let us stand and sing, and can it be? And then I'll ask you to remain standing for the Lord's blessing.
well as you head forth into another week, do so with the blessing of our Lord Jesus Christ upon you. Grace to you and peace from him who was and he who is and he who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now unto him.